Genesis Genesis chapter 7. We will begin in verse 17, and we will read in just a moment down through the end of the chapter, verse 24. Our text this morning, Genesis chapter 7, 17 through 24. If you have your scriptures with you, I would encourage you to open them up. Now is the time that we have been waiting for and looking forward to. I want to welcome every single one of you um, to Big Woods Bible Church. It is a delight in a world that seems to be literally on fire at some level. We're able to come in here and kind of gather the loose fragments of our mind and the craziness of our own thoughts and focus all of our attention on the Lord. Thank you, Matt, for leading us this morning before the throne in worship. If this is your first time at Big Woods, a special welcome to you we are glad that you are here. <clears throat> we have a lot of ground to cover. First and foremost, I would ask that you bow your heads and pray with me before we dive into the Word of God this morning. Father, our heads are bowed before you as a sign of our submission to your authority. As we pause this morning with your Word, perfect and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, as it is now open before us. We recognize your sovereignty, and Lord, now in seasons and times and days like this, we rest and we trust in your sovereignty more than ever before. Father, our hearts are abroad in many ways, and we do pray for those, particularly in Israel and the surrounding Gulf region, those that are in harm's way. Father, we pray for protection. We pray for strength. We pray, Lord, for wisdom in decision-making. Father, as we have before our eyes throughout the course of this past week, reports of atrocities, Lord, that at some level are hard for us to, to even comprehend. And Lord, we have before us a reminder of the tactics and the lies of the enemy who seeks to destroy. And Father, our hearts now are not only for those that are in harm's way or under attack, but for those who are causing such harm, who are blinded by the evil one. Well, we look to military might or force or diplomacy ultimately lord we look to you first and foremost to change the hearts of those who seek to inflict such harm and father as we come before you as your own children we are so grateful that there is nothing that takes you by surprise lord that you have a perfect will that will come to fruition. And Father, in these days, as we have opportunity to, to not only lean on you, but to show and to share with others the strength that we can have and the peace and the courage and comfort that comes from the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives, may we be a comfort to those who need it. Lord, as your word is open before us, and I have this unique privilege to teach and to preach, I would pray that you would be glorified first and foremost. The name and the work of Jesus would be exalted. And Lord, as we are under the teaching and preaching of your word, that we would leave your house this morning knowing without a shadow of a doubt who you are, what you've done for us, and what you promise you will continue to do. Please help my mind and my mouth. The words... My mouth, the meditation of my heart, be pleasing unto you, O Lord. Speak, and may your children hear. We ask this in the amazing and matchless, wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen and amen. Okay, here it is. After, as we've looked at the last several weeks, the ark has been built. Preparations 
have been made. The animals arrived miraculously and went in along with Noah's family. Everyone, everything, all were securely in the ark. And we looked at last week what the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, shut the door. Now, why is this detail important? Because security and protection and salvation was needed because according to the Bible, this was what we're reading right here in Genesis chapter 7, the most destructive event the world has ever and will ever experience until the final judgment that will happen, that will happen at the second coming of Christ. If you recall, a couple weeks ago, I described a period of decreation before recreation. And, and well, here it is right now, the former in a little bit more detail for us. As I read our text, Genesis 7, 17 through 24, I want you to again note the repeated use of words and phrases, Okay. I want you to pay attention as the words are in front of you. They're, in, they're on your lap as you hear them from my voice this morning. Here it is. Genesis chapter 7 verse 17. The word of the Lord. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. And the waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh Died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 Days. The word of the Lord. Only two points for you this morning. The first one is this. The flood that we will consider global or local. Staying within the framework of proper exegesis by repetition, the author is making an intentional important point. I don't know if you picked up it on on it or not. And it is what? What is, what is the author wanting to communicate to us? It's the universality of the flood. It means this. It is total. It is global. It is not partial. It is not local. Everything died two times. All died four times. The waters prevailed four times. The King James Version says that it prevailed exceedingly. The NIV says that it rose quickly. The Berean Study Bible says they were completely inundated. The New American Standard says that the waters prevailed more and more. Now, now, why is it that we have to be so specific here? Because of doubt. Because of disbelief. And because of debate that God knew people would have a hard time with this story. It can't really be a universal flood, but a really, really bad storm. Severe, local flood of seismic proportions. Now remember, these criticisms are not only from the far-off left seething atheists. Remember a couple weeks ago I introduced you to a guy by the name of... Kenneth Feeder, an archaeologist, 
who, who talked about, in a sense, and this is what happens when we Google. This is the first thing that comes up. Anyone who believes, in a sense, a fantastic story of Noah and the ark is what is actually believing what they refer to as fringe archaeology. It's not really the real thing. Fantastic archaeology, cult archaeology, or spooky archaeology. If you really believe the words of this Bible literally, you're just a little off your rocker. Dr. Feeder says archaeologist, who's an archaeologist, says as the flood story itself is unsupported by any archaeological evidence, it's not surprising that there is no archaeological evidence for existence of an impossibly large boat dating 5,000 years ago. And so at some level, we kind of expect it from the far left, the seething agnostic or atheist. But you do realize that there are others, namely one, his name is Bernard Ram, a Baptist theologian. <gasps> a Baptist. And an apologist who wrote prolifically on topics concerned with biblical hermeneutics, religion, and science. And he offers multiple criticisms of a universal flood. And as I go through some of these, I will note this. He brings some excellent questions to mind. Some excellent questions that apart from the hand of God, the word of God, and the ways of God, we really don't have any logical or human explanation. Ram writes this, The amount of water that would be needed would be too much. I'm like, so this guy's got a PhD. He figured that out. The amount of water would be too much. Ram calculated to cover the highest mountains, 15 cubits of water above Everest, with water would require eight times more water than we know than we now have. Moreover, that much water would have altered the Earth's weight and disturbed the Earth's orbit around the sun. God would have had to create that much new water and then uncreate it afterward. Ram also says a mixing of salt water and fresh water would mean what? The destruction of many species of fresh water and marine life. God would have had to provide an entire new marine creation afterward. That's a really good question. Ram continues, the many species of the animals could not have come from all over the world. How did they cross the oceans? God would have had to provide a land bridge of, source, of sorts to offer a means of migration. And these are just a few of the problems that Ram, alongside of others, overwhelmingly come to a conclusion that says this, and I quote, the flood was local, to the Mesopotamian Valley. The animals that arrived by divine instinct were animals of that region. They were preserved for the good of mankind after the flood. Mankind was destroyed within the boundaries of the flood. Local, partial, end quote. So what do we do with these questions how do we respond now let me remind you the proper approach to a universal flood is not going to be to try to prove everything by unearthing the answer that is found in a secret decoder ring of sorts you will not find, now hear me on this, you will not find conclusive scientific evidence of every question. Certainly some evidence is out there. I considered some just briefly, and there's too many. I, I won't spend too much time. Evidence number one, fossils of sea creatures high above sea level due to ocean waters having flooded over the continents. Most of the rock layers in the walls of the Grand Canyon, more than a mile above sea level, contain marine fossils. Fossilized shellfish are even found in the Himalayas. Evidence two, rapid burial of plants and animals, extensive fossil graveyards, extensively preserved fossils. 
Evidence three, sediment transport at long distances. We find that sediment in those widespread, rapidly deposited rock layers had to be eroded from distant sources and carried long distances by fast-moving water. And gives an example of why, why is this dirt here when it's supposed to be up there? Many strata lay down in rapid succession. Rocks do not normally bend. They break because they're hard and brittle. But in many places, we find whole sequences of strata that were bent without fracturing, indicating that all the rock layers were rapidly deposited and folded while still wet and pliable before final hardening. Now, this is just a couple things that we could say, wait a minute, there's a couple questions here that really... Uh, make sense on proving a universal or global flood. But rather than just going to that, let's stay within the framework of the teaching of Scripture. What is Scripture saying? What does the Word of God tell us this morning? From Genesis chapter 6 all the way to Genesis chapter 9, there are approximately 30 references that speak of the universality of the flood and or its effects. I like the way Dr. Henry Morris says this, the wording of the entire record here and throughout Genesis 6 through 9 could not be improved upon if the intention of the writer was to describe a universal flood, end quote. Which means what? So this says What? What are we talking about here? As we kind of step back and we hear this fantastical story. You, personally, not the person next to you, you are going to have to come to a place where you trust the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture or you do not trust it. That, that's basically what we're boiling down to. While the sciences are an absolute gift of God that enable us a tiny little glimpse, a window to view the splendor and the wonder of God's creation, if you build your theology strictly upon the scientific method, which is what? Process involves making an observation, forming a hypothesis, making a prediction, conducting an experiment, and finally analyzing the results. If you're going to build your theology strictly upon that, then what? You're going to have a really, really hard time with the first five words of the Bible, let alone much of which follows. In the beginning... God created. You're going to have a hard time with that. Let alone what? Where we get to today in Genesis chapter 7. A universal flood where water rapidly, rapidly covers the whole earth. Or what about this? What about the water of the Red Sea that opened up and people walked through on dry land? Or what about water coming from a rock in the middle of a desert that had never been there before? Or what about bitter water made sweet or water being turned into blood in the rivers of Egypt? Or what about an axe floating on top of the water? That doesn't work scientifically. What about water being turned into wine? Or what about Jesus walking on water? Or the surging Waves of water from a storm are suddenly made still. And that's just dealing with a few references of miracles that have to do with water. Don't get me started. How do you scientifically explain manna falling down from heaven? Sorry, uh, want to run an experiment on that little baby. How about, how about the earth halted on its axis? is God is going to use men to accomplish a work in battle. How about a, a virgin who gives birth to a baby when she has never been with a man? How about a blind person who is given sight? How about a literal resurrection of a man who was what? Witnessed dead. No life. No breath. Three days. And he came back to earth again. Therefore, what? When it says all in scripture 
Let me give you a simple little kind of test of how we study. It means all. When, when it says every, God means every. Scripture is clear. There are numerous texts outside of the Genesis account that speak of this exact subject. In detail, universal flood. Psalm chapter 104, verse 5 says what? You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set boundaries that they may not pass. So they might not again cover the earth. Second Peter in chapter 3. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That by means of these world. These. The world that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. Old Testament account, New Testament account. So what's got to happen here? What do we do as we hear this to fully grasp this truth? And this is where you're going to be put into the category of you guys are just, you're just off your rocker. You are going to have to come to an understanding. You need to come to an understanding of the biblical definition of the word miracle. Miracle. Defined as what? An event that involves the direct and powerful action of God transcending the ordinary laws of nature and defying common expectations of behavior. Miracles are what? Are extraordinary occurrences that can only be attributed to one. To a sovereign God. The supernatural work of God. And what happens is that it demonstrates his involvement. His hand on human history. God employs miracles in the Bible to reveal himself to us. Reveals his character to us. Reveals his purposes to us. Through phenomena that would otherwise what? It would literally be unexplainable. You can't explain this. I go to a wilderness, Midian. Moses, remember, he's on the back 40, and he's kind of running from, and God is calling him unto himself. Very clearly stated in Exodus chapter 3 that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses says this, I will turn aside to see this great sight. That, that is what I want for you and I this morning. That is what I want for us when you see the ark floating atop the waters that are atop the mountains. I want you to what turn and see this great sight. Look at what God is doing. Second point. Jesus and the ark. Trustworthy or not? The flood's universality is important because what? It's, it's the teaching of the Bible. It is especially important because it is what? It is a great historical demonstration that when God speaks of unrelenting judgment on the day of his wrath, and he does speak of that, it means what? It means he means what he's saying. A universal flood is proof for us. Of universal judgment. And yet thankfully. Praise God. And we sang about this this morning. Praise God that when Christ speaks of this. He also speaks. Of how those who belong to him. His own. Are what? Are safe. And are spared. From the wrath to come. Jesus describes this in his teaching in Matthew chapter 24. 
Now, Matthew chapter 24 is arguably one of the more difficult texts for theologians and pastors as we study scriptures to interpret. And there are many differing views. There's a lot of talk, and I've had conversations on numerous fronts this week on this, this subject of the last days. As we daily are confronted with more, as what we hear this morning, a second carrier group is now moving into that region. And like this doesn't normally happen. And so people have asked the question, are we in the last days? Well, well the apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago that he was in the last days. And I think every single generation at some level we can clearly say, yeah, but are we in the last days of the last days? It is impossible for us to know. Keep asking the question. As a matter of fact, um, we're, we're actually going to dialogue a little bit about this, even, even in, in light of world events today. In our Q&A, we'll take some time on that because there's been a lot of people that have had questions. Like, what's going on over there? What, what, what do we need to know? Like, like, how does that align? Does this fit? Is this here? Is God shocked by this? And so we'll take some time. Any questions that you have, make sure you use the tool that's in front of you to ask a question, and we'll, 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 we'll talk about it. Will we have all of the answers? No. I'll tell you what we do have. We do have very accurate teaching from Jesus Christ on this very subject, on the last days. Matthew chapter 24. Let me, let me direct your attention to verses 29 and onward. I'll read uh, portions up to 41. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. Now that's just a little bit of a different description, I think, than what we have before us today. When the sun is darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And look what happens in the midst of this ter terrifying scene. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will what? They will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of the heaven to the other. And then, then he, he makes this connection, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Of man, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. You, you do understand here that God's talking about saving. Saving his elect. When God saves a life, he saves them from what? Not only the destruction around them, but far more importantly, he saves us from our own sinful destruction and let me tell you let me tell you this there is no human or scientific explanation for a transformed life it doesn't work scientifically everyone in his family and yet one bursts forth in humble submission before the lord what do we see here the literal blood of jesus christ God incarnate shed his blood on a first century Roman cross and that was sufficient to atone for the sins of anyone who has transgressed the holiness of God. And we step back and we say, totally paid for. Full atonement. Brokenness made whole. Sins. 
And you know the darkness that exists in the closets of your own heart that you don't want anyone to know about. All sins are forgiven. And it brings us back to what? It'll take a miracle. It'll take a miracle. Now, this is a horrible place for this illustration, but I got to use it. Sorry. Horrible place for this illustration. But you know where my mind goes? This is like, this is how messed up. Remember when Wesley was brought back to life because he had only been mostly dead in The Princess Bride? I know, I know, I know. Just stick with me for a moment. Kind of like mostly dead. And he's kind of been brought back to life. And, and Miracle Max and his wife Valerie, remember, they're standing at the door. And they're waving goodbye. And literally direct quote, bye-bye boys, have fun storming the castle. Like this famous line. Valerie asked her husband next to him, do, do you think it'll work? To which Miracle Max doubtfully replies, it'll take a miracle. It'll take a miracle. You know, at, at some level, that's the only way. It's only through the miraculous work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, when salvation is needed everywhere, look around us. There is what? There is no need for you to doubt. Remember the definition of what a miracle is, an event that involves the direct and powerful action of God transcending the ordinary laws of nature, defying common expectations of behavior. Miracles provide evidence of God's presence and God's power in the world and demonstrate his authority on behalf of all of his servants. Now, why all of this? Why all of this? You know why? It's because you and I, we live, we breathe, we teach, and we preach a message that cannot be fully explained. It cannot be fully explained. Thus what? Colossians chapter 1 Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, there is something called the mystery. The mystery of the gospel. Think of Jesus' miracles. They were pictures of salvation. Jesus often made a point of identifying a miracle that he had performed with the reality that it signified. Luke chapter 5, I love this, one of my favorite stories. Luke chapter 5, remember the paralyzed man who was let down through the roof? These are some, these are some cool dudes that he's got as, as friends, as brothers. Where the crowds are so thick that, that they can't get in. And so, hey, I got an idea. There's always one guy in the group who says, I got an idea. We're going up there and we're going to cut a hole. And can you imagine, like, Jesus is in the middle of, like, great teaching, probably in the middle of, like, a great illustration. Everyone's captivated, and all of a sudden, there's the crumbling uh, of, the, of, of the straw, of the reeds, whatever it is, and it begins to crumble down. And somebody's like, who's disturbing us? Remember that story? And we know that what? Jesus made an explicit connection between the healing of the man's body and the forgiveness of his sins. Being delivered from illness was a picture of being delivered from the guilt and the power of sin through what? A miraculous healing and a demonstration that Jesus has the authority to do whatever he wants to do, to grant both. And so Jesus draws the attention and the importance of faith. And notice it's not only faith in the one who was healed, but it's faith in those who cut the hole in the roof. It says what? When Jesus saw their faith. I love that. Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven you in 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 that way 
2. Jesus made his miracles a picture of salvation, forgiveness, deliverance granted to anyone, to anyone who believe in the power to save. Let's go back to the ark that is floating atop the water, atop the mountains. When it, when it comes to the miracle of the ark, and it is a miracle, when it comes to the miracle of the cross, and it is a miracle, the conclusion is undeniably trustworthy. You can go to the bank with this. Think about this. As safe as Noah and his family were in the middle of a terrifying storm. And I, and I will submit to you this. It was terrifying. As safe as Noah and his family were in a terrifying storm, so are you at the foot of the cross. Which means what? There's safety in no other place. There, there's, there's no other peace apart from you being at the foot of the cross. And so as, as we begin to, in a sense, kind of turn our attention to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us through the community table and, and what we do regularly. Let me, let me ask you this question. Where, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Can you trust God who has revealed himself through his own miraculous works of salvation from beginning to end? Or, or, or not. You're like, no, I'm, I'm not really there. Maybe today would be the best time for you to like begin to ask questions about that. To begin to pray and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm not trusting in you and your plan. Maybe you need to listen to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you. Maybe you need to open your hearts and your your, your eyes to, to see and your ears to hear and to learn that it's not salvation offered by any means that this world has got. Maybe you need to start by confessing that your hope has been what? In your own strength, in your own plan. Who? Who, who, are you, who is your faith in? Are you trusting in the one who created you? Remember it says what? In Psalm 139, he knits you together in your mother's womb. He, he, he knows you in secret places. He created you. He loves you. He sustains your life up to this moment. And he's offered you his own son, and are, are you trusting in that or are you trusting in your own hope to save? Hope it works out. Maybe today we need to begin by confessing and asking for forgiveness for doubting God's plan. Yeah, I don't know about that ark idea. Like it's, it's pretty fantastical. 1 Timothy I was named, my mom went home to be with the Lord, I don't want to, this past spring, and I was named, my mom named me after um, Timothy in the Bible. Um, Timothy John, my, my dad got the middle name, and mom named me Timothy, and, and I wonder why, she referred to me as Timotheus, whenever I was in trouble, it was always Timotheus. And I, and I can identify at some level with Timothy, because in all honesty, um, he, was, he was a bit of a whiner. He was a bit of a baby, a bit of a scaredy cat. And Paul's always like, come on, boy. Come on, boy. And, and at some level, we, we have these words, what? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says that if we are faithless, if we are faithless, if we doubt, and I, and I love this, it says that he remains faithful. And I don't know about you, I need those reminders every single day. Because in my flesh, like, like all that's here, like I, I don't have it. I don't have it. Faithless. This morning I'm faithless. And yet God remains 
faithful. And he graciously whispers, Timothy, Timothy, my son, my son, I've got this. May that be a reminder for you and I as we what? As we think about and we pause and we remember exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. So impactful, so important. The last, in a sense, lesson that Jesus ever teaches before he goes to the cross. Sitting with with what? Those closest to him. I think you could probably say they were faithless at times. And Jesus says, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you something, and, and, and I want you to pay attention. It's kind of like a child where you, where you take your hands and you place them on either side of the child's head, and you draw them closely, and you're like, listen to me as Papa talks to you. Get this. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. And they're kind of leaning in. And, and it says that they begin with bread. And it says that they took bread after supper. And Jesus broke it. And as he broke it, he said, this is a picture of my body. And I'm wondering, did you have to bring their attention back again? You're wondering, look at this. And he passed it around. He said, I want you to take a bite of it. And we know what happens when we smell something, when we taste something, we can touch it, we see it. All of our senses, what it is seared in our mind. Don't forget, and Jesus says, that bread is a picture of my body. My body is going to be, going to be torn apart, and it was. After that, it says that he took the fruits of the vine. He took some wine and, and he poured it out. He said, just as I poured this, my blood is going to be poured out. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sins. And you think about, what, what is it? It's only a miracle. The shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, what? Paid for the sins that you and I and every single person has ever lived on the face of the earth, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that his blood was sufficient to save. And he passed around. I said, take a sip of this. Same thing. You taste it, you remember. That's what we're called to do as, as a called out body. Sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, brothers and sisters in Christ. In the midst of what? A world that seems to be crazy. And we are doubting and we can be faithless. And we are given a reminder that says, just as Noah and his family were safe in the ark, so are you and I safe at the foot of the cross. May we be reminded of that. May you be reminded of that. May you be encouraged by that. May you rest well on that truth. Experience a peace that is beyond understanding so what we do here is the third sunday of every single month we, we gather to celebrate and remember what jesus christ did for, through us now now it is very clear that the communion table is strictly reserved for believers those who have put their faith in the full and finished work of the lord jesus christ the breaking of his body and the pouring of his blood and so if you are a believer here today, then I invite you. The men are going to come up and are going to serve this to you. I encourage you. And as you taste the bread and as you drink the cup, may you be comforted at the miracle that took place on the cross. That God saw you through your faith and the grace that was offered and our receiving of that there is the hope of eternal life. There is salvation. I respectfully ask that if you are here today and, and you've not made that decision, you're not fully understanding. I don't know, like I, I read the Bible, but you don't have a personal relationship. I would respectfully, I'm not trying to be rude. Like come into our house, but don't eat this. I'm saying come into our house, but don't eat this. It's not really for you. It would be meaningless for you. But what a wonderful reminder to see what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
And today is the day of salvation. You can at this very moment receive the gift that has been offered to you. For by grace, through faith, you're saved. It is a gift, not of your own doing, not of your own works, but of his. And there's no greater work that is demonstrated for us than the work of Jesus Christ atoning for your sin and my sin on the cross and us simply and humbly receiving it and celebrating God's goodness. I'm going to ask the elders to come up at this point and just so that you know if you're new to Big Woods, um, they'll go to different stations. There's five different stations throughout the sanctuary and what I'd encourage people to do is just take a moment and reflect on what you've heard. Reflect on what you are about to eat and drink. And in the quietness of your own heart, thank the Lord for the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. And after a moment or two in silence where we can just be grateful for the forgiveness of our sins, then I would ask you to get out of your seats and, and come to one of these stations and the guys will give you bread and cup and go back. And then we will partake together as a family remembering the work of Jesus Christ.
Thank you, my brothers. Would you pray with me? Father, as we are bowed together in your presence, we confess that there are times that we are faithless. But we thank you that you are always faithful. And we thank you, Lord, for moments like this that when we can very easily kind of get our, our minds, our eyes drawn off of you to the worries of this world. We thank you, Lord, for a moment to recalibrate our faith by focusing entirely on you, on the cross. And we thank you. We thank you for your body that was broken on our behalf. You took the pain that we deserved. That it was your blood that was poured out and you felt the full wrath of your heavenly father. We thank you, Lord, that it's, it's through that work that we are justified, declared righteous in your sight. And it would take a miracle for that to happen. We thank you for the miracle of the cross. Father, now as we eat this and, and drink this, may you encourage our hearts on what matters. May we rest, may we trust, may we celebrate. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. May you bless this to our bodies. Strengthen us in our faithfulness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the very night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, it's this cup that is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and may he come quickly.